Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look into your word, that you would put your words in my mouth, and we ask that we not have to listen to me, but that we might hear you. We also ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, and that what we hear from your word will not simply be intellectual, but will encompass and surround and fill our hearts so that what we receive is a rhema word that allows us to walk out of here differently than we were before we came in, that hearts will be changed. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for his honor and glory. Okay, we are in Judges. uh, Gary brought us into Judges last week. And we are more or less in what would be the beginning of Judges, in a sense. We are going to go into Judges 4. And I'm going to begin reading in the fourth chapter of Judges with uh, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Agoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up, to, came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Ahinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. And Deborah also went up with him. Now, in looking at this section in Judges that deals with Deborah, uh, it's actually... uh, in two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, chapter 4 is simply a historical account of what happened uh, in prose, if you will. Chapter 5 is called The Song of Deborah, and it is poetic. And interestingly enough, the Song of Deborah is more detailed about the actual battle between Israel and Uh, and Sisera in his army. 
This you'll notice uh, it says in verse 1, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, Judges has hardly gotten started, and this is the third time uh, that they've done evil in the sight of the Lord and turned away from the Lord. Now, Joshua, after his death, uh, the various tribes of Israel were responsible for driving out the Canaanites and the other nations, the other pagan nations that were uh, holding on to their land, that were residing on their land. And some of the tribes were successful, like Judah, in cleansing the land of the various uh, tribes and nations that were idolatrous. But some of the uh, some of the Israelite tribes failed to completely get rid of uh, the Canaanite nations and the idolatrous uh, practices that they uh, engaged in. And what happened was that they left idol worshipers in the land, and you have a bunch of neighbors now around Israel who are worshipers of false gods and idols. Uh, Judges 2.10 gives us an insight as to why we have, again, for the third time, the younger generation turning away from God uh, and seeking after uh, the worship of idols. In Joshua 2.10, he says that all, that all that generation, all that generation, and that would be Joshua's generation, all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, and yet, nor yet the work which he had done uh, for Israel. In other words, the two aspects that are the cause of the problem, one, this new generation didn't know the Lord, and secondly, and I'm not using this in the disjunctive, but in other words, and or, and they had not seen uh, the great works of the Lord, and this turns out to be because of that, a, and a repeat of that situation. It turns out to be a constant problem uh, in Judges. It goes. This is a cycle that goes on every time they turn away, they cry out, they're delivered. They turn away, they cry out, they're delivered. They turn away, they cry out, they're delivered. It goes on and on and on all the way through the book of Judges. And frankly, folks, this cycle goes on and on through history. And it's happening today. Uh, we see the young people, the younger generations, are falling away from Christ and falling away from the church in droves. Uh, and I would suggest to you Joshua 2.10 uh, captures a lot of the reason for why that's going on. The problem is if you don't know the Lord or you have a very narrow, or rather, I'm sorry, very limited intellectual view of him, that's no competition for the visible idolatry that's going on around them. And so it's much more easily done for them uh, to engage what they see as opposed to what they don't see and, frankly, what they don't know. Um, it is absolutely critical that the children of the upcoming generations be uh, taught the Word of God and be taught uh, the Scriptures. Um, and again, as I say, that's happening here. That failure is ongoing so often in the church itself. Uh, but 
equally as important. In other words, they need the foundation of the Word of God in their hearts, but equally important is they need to see the actual works of God in their daily life. Because in seeing the works of God in their daily life, uh, they are able to determine that what God is, they've been taught about God in the scriptures turns out to be true as they see him uh, responding exactly the way the scriptures say that he does. And frankly, we need to start looking at ways in which we can pray for our children to actually experience the mighty works of God. And I'll give you one example, and it's simply based on what we as a family did. Uh, and that is, you start having prayer time with your children as a family. Uh, we had three daughters, and as they were growing up, we would meet every Sunday night in the, in the den and have prayer time. And we'd go around the circle and find out prayer needs, etc. I'm I'm not saying you should limit it to Sunday night, but that's what we did. Uh, I will say that any time a problem came up, uh, whether it was Sunday night or not, we'd sit down as a family and pray about that problem. In fact, I remember one time uh, at the office, I lost a file. It got misplaced. And we turned the place upside down trying to find it, and we could not find it. And the problem was, in that file was about two or three hours worth of work that I had done. And if we couldn't find that file, I was going to have to sit down and repeat the same work I had done and spend another two or three hours doing it. Now, we sat down as a family, uh, and we prayed about it. And I needed, we sat down that night because the next day, if we didn't find it, I was going to start doing that work again. Well, my middle daughter, Emily, prayed that we would find it before noon. So when I got home the next day, everybody wanted to know, did you find the file? And I said, yes, we found it at 11.59. (laughs) There is no question, and there was no question in anybody's mind that that was the Lord specifically answering that prayer. That's what I'm getting at. Of course, I did say to Emily later, next time we lose the file, please pray we find it before 9.30. <laughs> but, but they saw God. It's a simple prayer. I mean, it wasn't the parting of the Red Sea, but it was a simple prayer that he answered. And it was dynamic in the way in which he answered it. And he did that on purpose so we would understand that that was him. Okay, now... Uh, In Judges 4, what's happened is what they usually do is they've turned to idols. uh, And God delivers them, because they've turned away from him, to worship idols, which, of course, is a direct violation of the Ten Commandments. He's already given them. Uh, God sells them into the hands of Jabin, king of of, uh, Canaan. And in other words, God actively brings them into the oppression under the king of Canaan, and the king's name is Jabin, and his general of his army is Sisera. And it says in chapter 4, verse 3, it says that the Canaanites under Sisera severely oppressed them. 
And it makes a point of saying that Sisera had at his command and control 900 iron chariots. Now, in other words, what we're saying is that their army was state-of-the-art at that time because it was about that time that the uh, uh, use of iron began to be developed and then ultimately went into the development of, of warfare. So what the picture we're getting in verse 3 is is that the Canaanite army under Cicero was extremely uh, big and dangerous and far superior in size and ability to the Israelites. Uh, now, I uh, read one commentator that said that iron chariots were the equivalent of tanks. Uh, they really weren't. Um, they did not use chariots. In other words, when the enemy forces were flanked and moving toward them, they didn't attack the enemy forces initially with chariots. That's a good way to lose your chariots. They become surrounded by infantry, and they're pulled out of their chariots. No, the chariots were used, not just by Sisera, but in general. The chariots were used to pursue the enemy when he was fleeing. And so what they would do is they would kill soldiers. Their chariots would catch up to them, and they would kill them as they were running away if, if the army, if the warfare, I mean, if the battle went against that particular army that Cicero was fighting. So in other words, what these things were were killing platforms on wheels. Uh, and that's what they basically used them for, and they were extremely dangerous, and people were extremely afraid of them and didn't even want to go talk about going into battle with them uh, because of that sort of thing. But after 20 years, Israel realizes, what are we doing? They're sick of the oppression, and they suddenly and decide to look up to God, and they cry out to him. Now, it doesn't say they repent, but that's the implication. They repent, they look up, and uh, they cry out to God, and God raises a deliverer. Uh, and he does so in the form of Deborah uh, and Barak. Uh, now, that's covered in what I read in uh, what we're going into is verses 4 through 10. Uh, and Deborah is an interesting lady. Uh, she is a wife. We get that from uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. Her husband's name is Lapidoth uh, or Lapidoth. And we also know from uh, Judges 5 verse 7 that she's a mother. So Deborah is a wife and a mother. And she is also a prophetess who as a result judges the people. They bring their problems to her, and she's sitting under the two trees in Ephraim, and she renders judgments uh, based on their needs and their problems. Uh, Deborah, and this says speaks well for her, Deborah is one of the more godly judges that we see in the book of Judges. Uh, she does not appear to be foolish or morally weak, as in the case of, say, Gideon, or uh, Japheth, or Samson, um, and she is really a godly woman. And the question is, why at this time does God raise up a woman? Because woman, women, not only in uh, Israel's 
uh, culture, but the surrounding cultures more or less, and I hate to say this, were sort of second citizens in a sense. Um, it was when Christianity came in that women were elevated to the place they should have been from the beginning, and that is equal. Uh, and frankly, uh, Jabin and Sisera would have mocked Deborah uh, as a, a mere woman leading Israel. Uh, so why would God do that? Because God raises up whom he chooses. And he transcends cultures. And he does not allow a culture to determine what he's going to do. He has obviously prepared Deborah for this time. And he raises up Deborah. And um, Deborah, in addition to that, and you pick this up just in chapter 4, Deborah is obedient. And she is willing to see that God gets the glory. Now, those are tremendous qualities uh, for Deborah. Uh, in fact, God uses weak people and people who are regarded, in this case it would be Deborah, people who are regarded as nobodies. Any nobodies out here? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. <laughs> but if you're a nobody, you're in great shape because God can use you and will. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 113 uh, beginning uh, in verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are on, in heaven and in the earth? Now, let me mention something real quick. It says he transcends the heavens and the earth. In other words, he transcends not just the earth, but the universe. And right now, they think there are at least two trillion galaxies in the universe. And he is above that. And yet he looks down on us in the tiny little speck that we're on called earth. And let me continue on. He says, um, verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. For what purpose? To make them sit with princes. With princes of his people, he makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Okay, then let's go over to the New Testament's version of this. And that's 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shatter, uh, to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Aren't you glad, yes. fellow nobodies? Yes. He chooses us to do his work 
we give him the greater glory just because we are who we are, uh, his children, but we're also weak, uh, and that's why we're so dependent on him. Uh, now, um, if you are, um, let's talk about um, Barack. But I would say if you're a nobody, what I just said, you're a prime candidate to be used, to be his instrument. Um, now, Barack, she sends for this gentleman named Barack. In other words, she sends for Captain Lightning. Uh, now, why do I say that? Because Barak means lightning in Hebrew. Now, we'll find out here that Barak is more a flash in the pan uh, than actual bolt of lightning. Uh, but God sends word in this section 4 through 10 of chapter 4. God sends word to Barak uh, through Deborah that Barak has been chosen by God to fight Sisera uh, and his 900 iron chariots. Um, I can imagine Barak listening to that saying, oh, thank you very much. Um, but what he's saying is, uh, what Deborah is saying to him is, God is sending you against a more powerful and superior army. But he will give them into your hand. And God assures Barak that he will give victory to Barak uh, and unfortunately, that turns out not to be good enough for Barak. Even though it's a direct promise from God to him through Deborah. Uh, and the reason why it's not good enough is because Barak is weak in faith. Barak has a problem with completely trusting. Now, last week, Gary talking about Japheth said that Japheth was strong in faith but weak in theology. Now, I don't know about Barak's theology, but he was definitely not strong in faith. He was very weak in faith. Uh, and he says, uh, I'm not going to go unless, Deborah, you go with me. Now, arguably, that may be his way of taking God with him. But it certainly was unnecessary and certainly not what God commanded him to do. God didn't say, uh, Call the army together, go get Deborah, bring her with you, and I'll bring you against Sisera. He didn't say that. Uh, and so Barak says, I'm not going unless you go. And Deborah says, I'll go. But this is going to cost you honor. And the honor of defeating Sisera himself will go to a woman. And uh, we initially, when you read this, you think that's talking about Deborah. But it turns out it's not. It's talking about a lady named Jael uh, who actually kills uh, Cesera, which we'll see in a minute. Um, but um, in Judges 4, let's pick up with Judges 4, 14 through 22. Now, it's going to be up there, but what I'm going to do to save us a little time is I'm going to summarize it. Uh, what happens is Barak goes with Deborah, and he calls the army together. And 10,000 men come down from Naphtali and Zebulun to follow him uh, at Mount Tabor. Sisera hears that that's being done, and, of course, he sees that as rebellion, which it obviously is. And so he calls together his men and his chariots. Uh, and they wind up uh, confronting one another in a battle at the river Kishon. In verse 10, uh, Deborah says, The Spirit of the Lord came up." Um, Let's see. No, I'm in uh, chapter 3, aren't I? Uh, that's no wonder it doesn't work that way. What I just said is correct, though. 
verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down to the mountain Tabar with 10,000 following him. And then we see in verses 15 and 16 that at the river Kishon, there is a major victory given to Israel against Sisera and his army and his chariots. And frankly, there is a hint in Deborah 5, I mean Judges 5, that the reason the chariots weren't that much help is they got bogged down in the river Kishon. Sounds like something the Lord would do. Uh, so Sarah winds up jumping out of his chariot and running for his life, and he winds up coming to the tent of Heber and his wife Jael. Now, Heber's apparently not at home at this time. The reason he seeks uh, refuge from her is because her, she and her husband have somewhat of a treaty with Jabin, the king of Canaan, and so he sees them as potential friends. Uh, and what she does is uh, she says, come on in, cover yourself up, hide yourself. He said, I'm thirsty, I'm tired, can I have a drink? She gives him some milk. He says, go stand at the doorway. And if anybody says, is anybody here, tell them no. So she covers him up. He goes so tired, he goes to sleep. And while he's asleep, she takes a tent peg and a hammer, and she hammers it through his head and pins him to the ground. In other words, I guess she was staking her claim <laughs> to victory. Sisera, uh, uh, our friend Barak, once Sisera fled and the army, and we know from this passage that I haven't read, Sisera's army was killed down to the last man. I mean, it was a massacre. It was a total wipeout. And so what happens, Sisera is being tracked by Barak. Barak shows up at Jael's tent looking for him. She said, oh, I know exactly who you're looking for. Come on in. There he is. Uh, and he sees that she has killed him, and he's lost the honor of defeating Sisera. So Deborah was straight on. Now, uh, what is something I want to mention here that we see uh, and incidentally, it was quite ignominious in those days for somebody like Sisera to be killed by a woman, much less a warrior like Sisera being killed while he was asleep. Uh, so this, he deserved everything he got, frankly, based on what we know about what went on. But what do we learn about this episode with regard to Barak's uh, unwillingness to go by himself uh, without... Uh, without uh, Deborah necessarily having uh, to come with him. And he's made a, God has made a promise that he will defeat Sisera and his army. God has specifically said, I will give him into your hands. When God says he will do something, he does it. Titus 1-2 says, God cannot lie. Okay, it's not that he could, but he doesn't. He can't. Even though he's an omnipotent God, there are certain things he can't do. One is lie, another one is be unfaithful. When he says, I will give them into your hands, he will. But what's interesting here is the lack of faith on the part of Barak, the failure to completely trust God. I'm not saying he didn't trust him at all. He obviously did, but he wanted Deborah to come along. 
The failure to adequately trust God to be weak in faith has nothing to do with God's doing what he said he would do. In other words, Barak's lack of faith cannot and does not negate God's promise. He uses him anyway. We cannot, by lack of faith, negate something God has said he is going to do. Now, a lot of us would probably identify with Barak. Uh, trusting God is can be an issue, particularly it's easy to trust him on some little things, but when you have to start trusting him on some big things, it can be, it can be a, a challenge in our faith. Okay, God knows that. You know, he knows all there is to know about you. When he called you, he knew everything there was to know about you, and he was never going to say to you, golly, I didn't know you didn't have faith. He's never going to say to you, gosh, I didn't know you had that hang-up when I called you, you know, things of that nature. He knows exactly what you're like. It says in Psalm 103 that he remembers that we are dust. And so lack of faith is not going to negate what God has decided to do. Now, that's not the same thing, for example, in James 1, verse 5, where he says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, but let him ask in faith. Uh, otherwise, you know, you'll, you can negate that. But where we're asking in prayer for something, we do have to exercise faith, uh, but like wisdom. But when he says, I'm going to do this, he's going to do it regardless. Now, if you're not able to trust fully, you may cost yourself some of the honor of being his instrument, but he's going to do it. In fact, um, I can uh, give you an example real quick. Um, when I was in the Navy in Norfolk, I had an opportunity to go to a Bible conference a seminar in Washington, D.C., and it ran for five and a half days from Monday to noon Saturday. And so I wanted to go to this. I'd heard a lot about it. And um, I made arrangements, got leave from the Navy so I could drive up from Norfolk to Washington, D.C. The problem was I'd never been to Washington, D.C. This was 1971. This was right after World War I. And they didn't have GPSs. Well, some of you know your history, I see. <laughs> and they didn't have GPS, and they barely had maps in those days. And I didn't know it was the conference was going to be held in Constitutional Hall. Constitution Hall. I had no idea where that was. All I knew is if I went up 95, I'd eventually, Interstate 95, I'd eventually hit Washington, D.C. I didn't know where it was. And worse than that, I didn't know where I would stay for six days or five and a half days. I had no idea what was available up there. Jesus spoke to me before I went. He said, don't worry. I have thrown a bridge across every river. And then he said, but if you choose to worry, I have still thrown a bridge across every river. So being the man of faith that I was, I worried. <laughs> and I missed a beautiful drive up 95 through Virginia, worrying and wondering, how am I going to find this place? Where am I going to stay? Well, I get on the beltway around Washington, and what do you know? There's a sign that says Constitution Hall, next exit. I get off on it, and then there are signs directing me to where Constitution Hall is. 
As I approached Constitution Hall, I discovered that tr uh, cars are parked everywhere all around it. And then I'm saying, where am I going to park? Just as I'm saying that, a car in front of the main door of Constitution Hall that's parallel parked there pulls out into the street, and I park there. Then I am registering at the seminar, and I... Uh, uh, wondering where am I going to stay, and i uh, about to ask the person behind the, uh, the, the table, where can I stay, when I'm tapped on the shoulder by somebody behind me. I turned around. It's the guy that goes to my church. He said, do you have a place to stay up here? I said, no. He said, we have a house in Fairfax. Won't you come stay with us? He threw a bridge across every river, and my failure to trust him that he would did not negate what he said. Yes. And that's important that we understand. Okay, real quickly, James 4 and 5 constructs, is so constructed as to display God's glory through his compassion and his deliverance. Uh, it doesn't allow Israel, he won't allow Israel to do things as it pleases. Neither will he do that with us. Uh, and he lovingly places them in oppression. He places them under oppression because his desire is to bring them to repentance. That's what we call tough love. And that does. They eventually start looking up, realizing they have left the one who is all-powerful, who loves them, and they repent and cry out to him. And God's, God's compassion is seen first in his discipline of them, designed to bring them to repentance, and then when they cried out, his compassion, and he's been patient all this time waiting for this, his compassion is then seen in his delivering them. Uh, and when God gets ready to move, it is absolutely irrelevant how big the opposing force is. In fact, in terms of the battle uh, with Sisera, it wasn't a fair fight. Not fair for Sisera, that is. Because God is sovereign, God is omnipotent, he cannot be thwarted by nations, demons, or any number of people. When he gets ready to move, it doesn't matter the size of the army or how many iron chariots they've got or how many tanks or how many missiles or any of that. He raises up generals, he deploys armies, including enemy armies, and he brings them to where he wants them to be. For us, Romans 8, 31 says, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? This is, a, this is a description of the application of that very verse. Also, uh, Psalm 33, 16 says, the king is not saved by his mighty army. Where individuals are fighting against each other, if they're fighting against God, and even if it's unequal, it's a foregone conclusion. Now, folks, what we need to be right now, uh, and this is why I need to move on quickly, uh, America is not Israel. America is not God's people. The church is God's people. Okay, all right. Now, we're seeing all kinds of evil going on. Violence, deception, uh, 
sexual uh, misconduct, you know, perversions of every kind, and it seems to get darker and darker. The question is, what if we're God's people, and he says we are? You go look in 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18. I'm not going to read it because I don't have the time. But if we are God's people, then we're in the same position Israel was in. And I suspect that the church is in large part asleep in this nation. We need to have a motivation of desperation because these are difficult times and the hostility is growing against the church. Uh, There are many here who are determined to destroy the church. It won't happen. But we have got to turn to him and cry out to him and repent and ask him to purify us. It's revival occurs in the church. It's awakening that occurs in the nation. We have to be revived that awakening might occur. But we need to be desperate, folks. I've noticed that desperation fuels prevailing prayer and fasting. So we need to start praying for that desperation because I don't think many of us see exactly the abyss we're standing on the edge of it. And certainly the nation is. And when God is for us, I don't care who thinks they're against us. It won't matter. And he will come in and he will fill us and we'll go forward. Now we'll say this, for revival and awakening, there is a cost to be paid. Satan doesn't sit still while we clean his kingdom out. Uh, But the only way this nation will be saved is with awakening. The only other alternative is judgment. And I don't think he wants to bring judgment. He says that he's not willing that any perish. Okay, I'm going to close this. And I will close this with my favorite verse that I frequently close this with. And that is Ephesians 4. I'm sorry, Ephesians 3. It's a doxology. And the reason I read it so often is I was converted listening to this being preached on right before World War I. (laughs) But it was right after the Civil War. (laughs) Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay. I'm going to let you go. But don't stop with amen. Go forward with what we're talking about. Ask him to show you. And really, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking for desperation (laughs) because I find desperate people uh, are powerful prayer warriors. And I think the Lord is showing me something. The disciples, the apostles in Acts 1, when they were waiting on Pentecost, Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem until the promise of the Father has been poured out. I think they didn't know what that necessarily could involve, but I think what they prayed is, send the promise of the Father. I suggest we pray that too. Send to us the promise of the Father. Acts 1.8 says, for you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is 
poured out upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. We're the uttermost parts of the earth. It still applies to us. So I think we should begin crying out, send the promise of the Father. Pour out your spirit on us. It's his decision when he does it, but he responds to prevailing prayer for that purpose. Okay, you're dismissed.